I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We'll be looking this morning at 12 to 15. I'll begin reading in verse 11, but 12 to 15 will be our focus. How to be a gospel church. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would speak to our hearts and minds the truths of this message in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, as we were looking at the church and what the church is, um, I mentioned two Greek words. You may recall from Romans 12, the first one was the word Philadelphia. It translated a brotherly affection in Romans 12. And the second word was a combination of that word Philadelphia with the other Greek word called storge. It's translated just love in that passage. And both words were originally used for the love that families have for one another in the human family relationship. And Paul takes those terms and applies them to the relationship, the the loving relationship we have with one another in the body of Christ, with the family of God. The church is a family. That is, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only that, we are God's family. That is, we don't have the right to just live as any family that we just see fit to live. We have to follow the conduct that the Lord sets forth for us in His Word, follow His will, follow His purpose as it's laid out in Scripture. And so for our purposes this morning, it's that idea that we are a family that I want to focus on. And what I'd like us to see is that as God's family, we're not only to be shaped by love and and allow love to shape us, but we're to be shaped by the gospel and allow the gospel to shape us as a church. And that's why we're turning here to this passage in 1 Thessalonians, particularly verses 12 to 15. When This is Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And he addresses them as brothers 21 times. And again, the Greek word he uses, uh, delphos, refers to uh, siblings in a family. And he's talking about both brothers and sisters. And the point is that we are spiritual brothers and sisters born into the family of God by the Holy Spirit. And so it should be our aspiration, it should be our desire to live out our days in the church as a family. We do it as siblings. That's what Paul calls us to do when you get to chapter 4, verse 13. Um, He's been talking about these brothers and sisters, and now Paul's saying, look, I need to help these brothers and sisters in Thessalonica with their theological understanding of death. They're struggling with it and, and of the end times. And so in 
Verse 13, we read, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, talk about those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. And then he goes on to explain about Christ's return. He says, we who are alive, who are left until Jesus returns to the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. What will happen? He says, well, the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left when Christ returns, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And, And then he says, look, and then we'll always be with the Lord. And then he tells us, verse 18, encourage one another with these words. And now we come to chapter 5, and Paul addresses questions his brothers and sisters had concerning the time of the Lord's return. He he encourages them with the, the message of the return of the Lord, but now they have some problems. And he says, look, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to worry No need to have anything else written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And then he goes on to explain, and he tells the Thessalonians that they have nothing to fear, for God has not destined us for wrath, he says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that we... for so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so I read that so you'd see the connection. In verse 18, chapter 4, Paul says, look, encourage one another with these words about Christ's return. And now in chapter 5, verse 11, he writes, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Do it more. The apostle knew that his brothers and sisters in Thessalonica were struggling with two questions. Two questions. What happens after death and what will happen at the end of the world? And so here he is, this caring, loving pastor, and he addresses both fears, and he brings relief to them with these questions and these concerns by applying the truth of Scripture. What he does is say, you have questions, and they're causing you anxiety. They're causing you stress. Here, let me apply doctrine. Let me teach you doctrine in the light of the spectacle of death and the light of the end of the world and in the light of the fact that the gospel has saved us and prepared us to joyfully face both death and Christ's return, Paul says, I encourage you with these words. I encourage you and build one another up. And so do you see it? It is the word of the gospel that encourages us. It's the word of the gospel that builds us up. It's the word of the gospel that must shape us as a family of God. And it's in that context that we will look at these four verses. The knowledge that because Christ died for us as our substitute, that he rose again. When we die, we will not sleep but be raised. And the knowledge that the one who died and rose again is coming back for us must affect how we live in the family of God. 
And so in, it's, it's in the light of Christ's return that Paul, in verses 12 to 15, exhorts believers to live in relationship to one another in a certain way. We're, we're, what he's going to say is because Christ is returning, this is how you're to live. Now, before we look at the verses, there is a lesson here, and, and I hope you picked up on it. Doctrine in general and the theology of the end times in particular must and should shape our life together as a family. We cannot live faithfully as the family of God if we do not know doctrine. And so let me encourage you to pick up a basic book in doctrine. Ask me. I have a bunch on my shelf. Sometimes, because I have a bad memory, I have two of them because I bought them twice. And, and so, and I'd be more than willing to let you have that. That help give you a knowledge of general doctrine, and in this case, not the details of the end times like we did in the seminar, but just the fact and the promise of Christ's return. Those things are foundational for us, and if we don't know them, we can't live faithfully. Now, anyway, as the title of the sermon and the title of the section, I got this from John Stott is how to be a gospel church, and, or if we were to put it in my own spin on it, how to be a faithful sibling in the family of God. And we're going to focus our attention here on verses 12 to 15. Now, here, here's an outline. If you're looking for an outline, here is one. In verses 12 and 13, Paul speaks to us about our relationship to the officers of the church, teaching and ruling elders in particular. In verses 14 and 15, Paul speaks to us about our relationship to one another in the body of Christ. And then at the very end of verse 15, Paul speaks to us about our relationship to those outside the body of Christ. And said, you got that, right? Officers, ourselves, and outsiders. That's, that's what we're going to look at. And he begins with our relationship within the family of God, and particularly with our teaching and ruling elders. Look at verse 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Now, it seems that there was dissension in Thessalonica, dissension between the pastors and elders on the one hand and the people on the other. And you could say that that has been true in every generation. It comes up in every church at all times. There, there, there could be this dissension. And Paul wants to correct this. And so what he does is he first describes the role of the teaching and ruling elders. What, what are they to do? And then how their brothers and sisters in the church are to relate to them and respond to their role. And so he sees this issue and he's going to lay it out. He says, those who labor among you. It's the first thing he says, those who labor among you. Elder work is labor, he's saying. The word Paul uses normally refers to manual occupations. It means toil, strive, struggle, and to grow weary in doing so. One writer says it conjures up pictures of rippling muscles and pouring sweat, none of which our elders have. <laughs> Paul, Paul, <laughs> Paul, Paul applied it to farm laborers. In, in 2 Timothy, and to the physical exertions, his own tent making in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians. But he also used it in 1 Timothy 4 in relation to his own apostolic work, and, and in 1 Timothy 5 to those who labor in preaching and teaching. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, 
especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, 1 Timothy 5.17. And so what Paul's doing here, and in those passages I just read or mentioned, Paul is describing the work of these leaders and what their labor is. They are to labor among you. That's the first thing. Um, and, And then he says that teaching and ruling elders are those who are over you in the Lord. The word for over meant to put oneself at the head or or, or to go first. And then later it meant metaphorically to preside in the sense to direct or rule or, or to protect or care for. And so the role of the pastors and the elders is to guide you, to shepherd you, to lead you. That is, they have authority over you in the family of God. And so they are over you. And because of that, they must confront you at times, which leads to the third thing Paul tells us about elders. They are to admonish you. The word admonish means to warn against bad behavior and the consequences of that behavior. It means to hold the Word of God up before you, and the Word of God calls you to live this way, and the elder saying, you're living this way, you need to repent and live according to the Word. And so the elders are to be the doctrinal and ethical guardians of the church to make sure that we're following the Scripture, Acts 20 says. They are to shepherd of God's flock, 1 Peter 5. They are to visit and pray over the six, James 5. They are to expose false teaching, Titus 1. They are to be workmen who correctly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2. They are to work hard at preaching, and they are to work hard at teaching, 1 Timothy 5. And they are to correct members who do not live in a manner corresponding to proper doctrine, 1 Timothy 5. And so they are to teach and shepherd and pray and reprove and even discipline those who are living wrong lives. That is their labor in the Lord. That's what Paul is describing. And notice he says their labor in the Lord. They are not to dictate. They cannot go beyond the Word of God. I may believe as your pastor who who loves you and cares for you, that there are certain things that you should not do. I think maybe it's prudent. But if Scripture tells doesn't tell me that is required of you, I cannot require it of you. I, I, and, and so therefore, I, I can't put you under discipline because you're not following my rules is the point. It's following the Scripture rules that Paul's talking about. And, and, and you're to do that, Paul says, and because of that, and, and assuming that is the case, that the elders and, um, and, and, and myself, the pastors, are admonishing you in the Lord biblically, Paul says this is how you are to respond. This is the attitude you should have. One writer says it this way, you are neither to despise them as if they're dispensable, nor to flatter or fawn over them as if they were popes or princes, but rather to respect them, that's verse 12, esteem them very highly in love, verse 13. See, Paul is calling on the congregation to show due regard for the pastors and the elders of the Lord he has put in the congregation. It's not because of a title. It's because of the work Paul says, esteem them very highly in love because of their work, reads verse 13. Their work of what? Their work of laboring, leading, and teaching. And so, what's he saying? 
You are to put me on a pedestal and love me. And you're to do it all the time. No. It's the position. You respect the office. And God has placed me there. If there's ever reason to remove me, you call a congregational meeting. Preferably, you don't do it at this one today at three. But, and, and, and you vote to remove me because I'm not obeying the word. It's the word of God, and, and I'm called to proclaim the word. And see, when that is the case, when there's a relationship with elder and members functioning biblically as it's supposed to, we're able to obey what Paul says here in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. And one writer said, peace will result when love increases among those in the church, especially when that increase is found between the shepherds and the congregational flock. And so that's the first group, the relationship in the church between the people and the elders. And he moves from that relationship and now turns to the relationship of all of us together as ourselves, that is between those in the family of God, those who belong to Christ. Look at verse 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another. And Paul says we are to respond appropriately to each kind of family member. And he names three here, admonish the idle, the faint-hearted, encourage them, and then help the weak. And so you have to admonish the idle, the elders... Uh, I, remember earlier the elders were to admonish? Now notice that everyone's supposed to do it. Uh, like the elders, every member is to admonish. And, and so this should make clear, first off, that it's not just the elders that are supposed to do the work of the ministry. That's what we talked about in the very first sermon. Everyone has a role to play. Now that word idle meant those who are idle, not remaining in one place, out of order, undisciplined. It, it could refer to breaks of commitment. It could refer to those who were playing truant from their work. It was used of a soldier who kind of stepped out of ranks. And therefore, what it does is, in this context, it refers to Christians who do not remain in their proper place and who are out of order and need to be admonished to walk according to the order God has commanded. But how are they out of order? Well, we're not told exactly, but they are undisciplined in their faith generally. That's the idea. They break their commitment to God, um, to go to church, uh, to, to love one another, and they, and they miss too often. They're not connected. They play truant from their Christian work. That, again, the idea. And, and, and such Christians in the family of God need to be warned and they need to be admonished by their brothers and sisters, not just the elders. That, that does come, but, but everybody, you need admonished. You need to say, look, I love you, brother. You need to walk according to God's command. And, and so we're to admonish the idol in the family of God. Not about every single sin. We can confront them, repent, brother. But it's talking about when, when people are stepping out of line and you're part of the body, you need to be confronted. Now, the second group is the faint-hearted. We're to encourage them. It literally means little souls. The references to those who become easily discouraged or or, are frightened. In the context, it may refer to those who are struggling because of their concerns, right, about death. Or maybe they lost a loved one and and they're unsure about the second coming and the the blessings of the second coming. And so they're they're anxious, they're, they're, they're frightened, they're discouraged. It could just refer to someone who's naturally timid. 
Basically, it's speaking of those who are discouraged due to trials in their life. And along with that, they're discouraged from the trials, but they don't understand how to apply the word of God in their situation. And, and Paul says they're to be encouraged. Those type of people, you, you, you strengthen them. You don't yell at them. He doesn't say admonish them. You don't get in their face and tell them to grow up. Boy, my, my, you know, I'm really struggling. Get a grip. No, you, you, you know what? Uh, don't you know what the Word of God says? Maybe you say to them, no, you, you got to come to them and say, do you know what the Word of God says? And, and you're encouraging them. They are to be comforted. Their faith needs to be built up and strengthened. And, and labor of fellow Christians is the role. See, encouraging those who live with the burden of this undue fear, unnecessary fear and discouragement is just as much part of our responsibility to one another as warning the idle. And so we need to encourage the faint-hearted. Admonish the idle. Everybody teases me how I say encourage. Encourage the faint-hearted. And now third, help the weak. The weak can refer to moral weakness, spiritual weakness, or just those who are in need. Uh, for example, the sick, somebody who's sickly, meaning you know, they're, they're struggling, or the blind, or somebody who's financially destitute. It can refer to all these things. Now, given that the faint-hearted includes spiritual weakness, it seems more appropriate to see this by referring to their helplessness. And, and, and every family of God has such people within its midst, and, and we need to do everything we can to meet their needs. See, what's the point? They're not to be seen as a burden. Boy, we'd really be a healthy church, but so-and-so just is always so needy. That's how we know we're a healthy church. We're helping those who are in need. It's not a distraction. It's part of our calling. The word helped, it means keeping oneself face-to-face with someone, holding on to them, maybe even hugging them. Instead of mocking the weak, uh, the family of God should be placed their arms around them, as it were, and, and hold them up and cling to them. That's the idea. See, a gospel church is a church that takes particular care of the helpless weak. And so there's very different responses, and, and this isn't exhaustive, of course, but there's very different responses for three very different kind of family members. If they're weak, if they're needy, they, they need to be helped. If, if they're, uh, they're faint-hearted, timid, they, they need to be strengthened. If they're walking out of step uh, with the Word of God, they need to be confronted. And, and, and we're to be doing that with one another in the body of Christ. In other words, we're to be looking out for each other spiritually. That's the idea, caring for one another spiritually, helping one another with the important work of what? Living the Christian life. We need to be here for everybody. Now, in case Paul missed anyone with those categories, there's three categories, right? Idle, faint-hearted, and weak. He now has a word for all. Just throws them all in. Everyone else, look, be patient with them all, says the end of verse 14. Now, there are two different words Paul uses for patience. One has to do with be patient in a stressful situation. Um, and, and the other has to do with be patient with people. Patience that, that's not uh, to retaliate. 
That's the word he uses here. He's saying, look, no revenge. I told the first service, I love revenge movies. The Godfathers, my favorite book, Monte Cristo, they're, they're about revenge. And, and the Bible's about the opposite, complete opposite. We, 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 we are to have self-restraint. We're to be patient. We're never to take vengeance. One writer explains, one might say that the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak were the problem children of the church, plagued respectively with problems of understanding, faith, and conduct. Every church has members of this kind. And what he says that Paul is saying is we have no excuse for becoming impatient with them on the ground that they're difficult, on the ground that they're demanding, on the ground that they're disappointing, argumentative, or rude. On the contrary, we are to be patient with them all. Now, we could probably stop here and just have a service of confession and repentance because that's difficult, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. That's what Paul says in Galatians. It, it, it's the characteristic of someone who truly knows how to love, says 1 Corinthians 13, 4. It's, it, it, and, and more importantly, it's, the, it's an attribute of God, says Psalm 103, 8. And think about it this way. Since God has been infinitely patient with us, we must be patient with others. And, and so that's the point. And so Paul covers everyone in the body of Christ, and he covers those particular three group, those needing help uh, to general Christian behavior within the family of God. Look at verse 15 now. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so all retaliation and revenge are forbidden of the followers of Christ. And so what does it mean? Well, if that is not an option for us, then, then I, I, we need to learn to forgive one another. Why? Well, we're about 200 people total, and, and, and we're not going to get along perfectly. You know, sometimes it's, it's I, I can always say, I love you. You just make it really hard to like you, and I'm sure vice versa. And, and so it's difficult, and so I can't take revenge when you do something. I, I have to learn to forgive. Uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ are going to do things that cause us to want to get even. And Paul's saying we, we cannot repay evil for evil. We have to forgive and love instead. Now, all Paul's doing here is echoing Jesus. That's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth. But I say to you, do not raise the, resist, that is, the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, that would have to be teased out. You just don't go around getting punched and saying, here, hit me over here too. There, there, there's context to this. But we need to not repay evil for evil. We need to leave room for forgiveness. Seek to do good, Paul goes on to say. Seek to do good to, to, do good to one another. Uh, basically he's saying, look, you need to love. And he, uh, you need to act like Jesus did toward us. Do you think we deserve God's love? That we deserved his patience? That we deserved our forgiveness? No. Even while we were enemies, 
He chose to love us and and send his son into this world, paying for our sin by substituting himself on the cross, forgiving us our transgressions, imputing to us his righteousness, reconciling us to the Father, and, and bringing us into this family, in this loving family relationship with God. When we were his enemy and children of the devil, he did all that while we were enemies. He didn't wait for us to get better. He'd still be waiting today. None of us would have. And Paul's saying, look, we must reflect that same love. We must reflect that same goodness, that same kindness to one another in the family of God. And so Paul's now addressed our relationships, the elders, with ourselves, the idle, the faint-hearted, the weak, and those we, we, you know, we struggle with tension-wise. We need to forgive and love within the body of Christ. And now Paul addresses our relationship with everyone else. That's the final group, the outsiders. We as a family must not only seek to do good to one another, Paul says elsewhere, especially the household of God, but not only to one another, but to those outside the church, including our enemies. Again, Paul is echoing, as it were, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, look, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. You see that, that family of God illusion. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even tax collectors do that. And if you greet only your own people, if you only greet one another, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, to love those who have done us wrong in the family of God, within the family of God, is to love the way God and Christ love. And and to love those who are outside of the family of God, that may even be our enemies, who, who, who even may despise the church, stand against the church, if we are to love them, now that may, that may take a different shape and form, but if we're going to love them like God the Father loves them and us and God the Son loved us, we have to do it. It's not an option. The world needs to know, understand this, the world needs to know that our attitude towards them is not hating them. We disagree with them. We stand in complete contrast with many of their teachings, if not all of them nowadays. But they must know that we're there to help and love, not hate them. doesn't matter if they like us. Did you ever ask yourself that? What, what, what excuses in the Bible does God give it? You love one another, love all, accept. Uh, Fill in that blank. Where, where is that in the Bible? It's not there. It doesn't matter whether they hate us. We want to do good to them because, as Jesus said, he did good to us even when we don't deserve it. And so we want to reflect that same kind of goodness and kindness and love to the culture around us. Now, of course, that may be tough love. That may be confronting and taking a stand and saying, sorry, brother, you need to repent. I don't believe in repentance. It doesn't mean it's not true, and we take a stand. 
but we're to love them. And they need to know that first. And so that is Paul's exhortation to the family of God in light of the end times, because that's what matters. Christ is returning. There will be a judgment. And, And so a gospel church is one of relationships. It's relationships between its leaders and the people. It's a relationship between one another. It's a relationship between the church and those outside the church. And in each situation, we're to respond in a certain way according to God's will and according to God's word. We're to respect and esteem our leaders who labor among us. We're to pursue peace. We're to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be forgiving and patient with all, and seek to do good to one another and those outside the church. And did you notice something here? For us to follow these exhortations that Paul gives in this passage, it, it cannot be done in isolation. It cannot be by yourself. It requires you to relate to one another. You cannot grow in your faith in isolation. Now, I know that there are some watching now, and you're, you're, you know, you're shut in. You can't get out. And so we need to be cognitive of that and visit those people in fellowship. But I also know that there are some watching right now that could very well get out, and they don't because it's easy. Well, let me say to you, in love, let me admonish you wherever you are. Let me admonish you. You cannot grow in your faith in isolation. You can't grow in grace. You can't become mature as a Christian without one another. Even even when there's tension, and I know it can get hard, but that's how we grow. That's part of our sanctification process. You need others. We need you. You can't grow in Christian maturity apart from the family of God, period. So much of our growth in Christ-likeness is in our relationships and comes about in our relationships with one another. And so your spiritual survival in many ways depends upon your family relationship in the body of Christ. Well, let me close. Let me just say that I agree with Legan Duncan. Duncan says this of his church. This is old when he was a pastor of this church. He said, many of these exhortations we do well, but we still have a long way to go. And I think, obviously, he was speaking for the church as a whole and every church, and it's just as true of us. You know, one of, one of the main reasons that we're renovating is we want to enhance our fellowship to provide an opportunity for us after services, after communion, to get together and fellowship in a room that we all fit together. And, and meals are, play an important part in the, in, in, in the Scripture of fellowship and, and those type of things, the importance of growing in a loving family. We need to, to do that. But that, that, you know, putting a room up is not enough. Uh, we, we, we need to grow in all of these things that we just talked about if we're going to truly know how to love. We can't say, phew, we are struggling with love, but now we have a really nice cafe. The nice cafe opens up the door. And so these exhortations need to be taken to heart. And we need to grow in them all. But but when I close, what I'm closing here, I want to focus on the fact that, as I said, we must do these things in light of Christ's 
return. The words of our closing hymn, on Christ a solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. And, we, and when we take our stand on Christ, the solid rock, it's not only upon his birth that we take our stand. We do do that. We discuss that. It's not only upon the doctrine of his life, that his perfect life is our substitute. Not only about his sacrificial death on the cross, that doctrine. Not only about the glorious resurrection. And we do stand on that. That is central to everything. But we also stand on his word and that he will, and he has promised, he will return for us. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. See, beloved, we need to live as a family of God, the way he describes it here and throughout the scripture, in light of the fact that our elder brother, Jesus Christ, is someday going to return for us and to take us to be with himself. And so, the prayer is that he would find us faithful. When he returns, he would find us longing for his coming. When he returns, he'd find us living at peace with one another and encouraging one another and building one another up. That he'd find us respecting those who lead us, comforting those who are faint-hearted and helping the weak, being patient with everyone. That he finds us doing good to all of ourselves within the body, but also we've demonstrated his love to those outside the church. I began saying, what does it mean to be a gospel church? That's what it means to be a gospel church. Let's pray. Father, week in and week out, we hear the charge of what you call us to as the body of Christ. And it's not hard to realize that as a church and as individuals, there are areas we need your forgiveness, areas we need to repent, areas that we need to work on. And so we ask that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would work in our hearts individually and corporately, and that we would be a church that loves. In Christ's name, amen.